Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. I appreciate your, uh, your worship. Uh, when I get to slip to the corners sometimes, right? Before coming out, and I can look across and, and see you, uh, you worshiping the Lord. And, um, I, and I greatly appreciate that. We ought to do that. But there are other ways we ought to also worship Him, and that's with our lives. And uh, that's with the choices we make and the, the way we live. That's really behind, I guess, the purpose of this series. We spent seven weeks talking about reasons why the Bible is true. And now we've moved from that to talk about, so since the Bible is true, then there's some things that we need to be paying attention to that the Bible says. We start out this series just by talking about if the Bible's true, you ought to read it, kind of foundationally. If it's something that's real, it's something true, God wants to speak to your heart. He took the time to have this Bible written for us by men that he inspired, so we ought to spend time reading it. Last week, we talked about how we ought to spend time talking to him uh, because he calls us to prayer also. And that's the other part of a relationship and a conversation taking place, us talking to to God. Today, we're going to start getting a little bit specific about some things. Since the Bible is true, that means that we ought to apply what it says to our lives. And, And that includes things that have been maybe debated a lot or things that are starting to to be morphed and changed by our culture such as marriage if the bible is true that means what the bible says about marriage is also true and and we need to pay attention to what the bible has to say we need to look at what the bible says and, and apply it to marriage and that's our topic today now, in a few minutes, you're going to think, wow, that kind of seems a little bit strange because of some of the areas I'm going to go uh, for a Mother's Day message. But I, I think you'll understand in a few minutes that it's not really that strange. Because you see, when, when traditional marriage comes under attack, that also attacks motherhood by some of the agendas that's being propagated in, in our culture. When our culture is pushing that it's okay for men to marry men and women to marry women and and to change the whole definition of what the Bible has said is a marriage and even a family for thousands of years. And all of a sudden our culture decides we need to change that. See, we, we need to adhere to what the Bible has to say. And in with an attack against Traditional marriage, that is an attack against motherhood. In fact, if people had not held to traditional marriage, you wouldn't have mothers anyway. So I think it is a, a message that we need to think about and, and apply today. We, we've lived in a, a culture for several years now that whether it be uh, Hollywood or uh, m- media or you know, sometimes politicians, it's like they, they've got this agenda that they want to completely rewrite our culture, rewrite what family is about, rewrite what marriage is about. So so much so that on June the 26th, 
2015, the U.S. Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage in America by saying the U.S. Constitution grants them that right. Now, now folks, I'm an American, and I'm proud of my country, and I consider myself a patriot, but I'll also tell you this. I'm a Christian before I'm anything else. And while the U.S. Constitution may say, this is okay, that's not the Bible saying, this is okay. And if you consider yourself a Christian, the final say in your life, as far as what has authority in your life, should be the Word of God and not government. And that's why we need to sometimes visit things like this and, and understand what the Bible really has to say. So we, we have a culture that's also growing up that's being taught exactly the opposite of what I'm going to say today. And, and I'm afraid they have been so accepting of it because the blame could be laid at the feet of the church because we have not proclaimed what the truth is. And we've not upheld what marriage in, in the family really is all about. So today, we're going to just look at the Bible. So since the Bible is true, let's consider what the Bible has to say about marriage. To begin with, the inception of marriage, or the creation of marriage, or the beginning of marriage, whatever you want to call it. Marriage, when we look in the Word of God, in the Bible, and in the creation story, we find out that, that the inception of marriage comes from God. God's the one that planned marriage. He, he's the one that created a man and, and a woman. And, and more or less, I think we see implied in the creation story of, of Adam and Eve and how God brings them together. I think we have implied there like the first marriage service even taking place. The, the Bible tells us this. So God created man in his own image. Let, let me run a rabbit just for a minute. Uh, I'm going to get in trouble running rabbits the next couple of weeks probably. I understand sin entered the world. And that's why we're having all the struggles with the things that we're talking about over the next couple of weeks anyway. But tell me how a same-sex marriage can betray the image of God. And the problem is, not just in that arena, the problem is many of us don't portray the image of God. Even as Christians, because we need to allow Him to mold us more. And His Word to mold us more. God created Him male and female. He created them. So in the very beginning of the story... You have God making a man and a woman. Now, the story's going to go from there, but I just want to point out to you, he didn't make a man and a man, and he didn't make a woman and a woman to begin with. He, he made a man, and he made a woman. The Bible clearly tells us that. Go on, and we'll see in Genesis 2, in verse 7, the man was created first. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and the man became a living creature. 
But very soon after that, the woman was also created. And I want you to notice the phrase used here, the word used here. The woman was created as a helper fit. Don't read past that word fit too quickly. A helper fit for the man. Now, ladies, don't take that word helper in a derogatory way because a a little bit later in, in the Bible, the exact same Hebrew word is used talking about God being our helper. So that's not a word that should minimize you in any way whatsoever. But it said, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone and I will make a helper fit for him. Now, let's find out who the helper was. Keep reading. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So to me, this is kind of simple. And I I think our culture just wants to deny this and reject it for obvious reasons. But God created a man and he created a woman. And the Bible clearly tells us he created the woman in a way that was fit for the man. I think that applies in a lot of ways. I think she's emotionally fit for the man. Because, guys, we kind of need that to help temper us out a little bit, our rough edges and, and, and everything. So even emotionally fit for the man. But I think it's true biologically also and physically and intimately that, that, that God made the woman fit for the man. And if God made the woman fit for the man, we are clearly departing from his will when we start saying same-sex relationships are okay. That same-sex marriages are okay. Because the Bible clearly gives us the example of that not being the case when we read what was taking place here in, in, in the Word of God. There's even a play on words uh, here. Uh, let's, let's keep reading for a moment. Uh, and uh, it, said, it said that he brought, he made into a woman that rib and he brought her to the man. He kind of, in my mind, it's like you've got a picture of God walking the, the first bride down the aisle to, to be joined together with Adam. Then the man said this, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Some translations don't focus on that word at last very much, but when you read it in the original language, what had happened was this. God had allowed Adam to develop a felt need in his life. God made Adam and he said, go name all the animals out here. And everything he's naming, he's seeing a male and a female, a male and a female, a male and a female, except for him. So now God makes Eve and brings her to him. And now he says, well, at last, you know, now, now I have a helper that is fit for me also. In, in verse 23, I think it's, I think it's Adam that was speaking. Most theologians believe when you go to verse 23, verse 23 said, at last, it's the bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She's a big old woman because she's taken out of man. By the way, it's actually a play on words there that I failed to mention. The word for woman is in the Hebrew is the word isha, and, and the word for man is ish. And the only difference is it has an A on the end. 
I think God, even the Holy Spirit, even chose a play on words to show us the close connection that ought to be between the husband and the wife, even by, by the naming process that we find there. But I, I think most theologians believe this. When you get down to verse 24 and 25, I think it's God speaking again. And here's what God says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and, and they were not ashamed. The old King James said, leave and cleave. But the word that's translated cleave in the King James actually means to be glued to. So I, I like this translation in the English Standard Version. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Hey, when, when you get married, the most important relationship in your life is no longer your parents, it's your spouse at that point in time. There, there's a leaving aspect that takes place there. And, and you're to hold fast. He's using words of commitment. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And they shall become one flesh. And they were naked and they weren't ashamed. There's a principle in studying the Bible that theologians refer to as the first mentioned principle. And what the first mentioned principle means is this. When you're looking at a particular topic, it's good to go and look at what the Bible said about it in the first instance. Because the first occurrence of a situation or a topic in the Bible, most of the time gives you a clear picture of where the heart of God is. And in this particular instance, in the first mention principle, and we go to what's said about a man and a woman being made and brought together in this relationship, it's clearly said in Genesis, it was a man and it was a woman that was brought together. So that first mention principle clearly shows us that God's intent, his original intent, and God's purpose, even in the way he made us. I mean, I don't want to get, get coy and talk about anatomy, but even the way God made us ought to show us that it's a man and a woman that's supposed to have come together. It's a man and a woman that's supposed to be, to be married. God creates marriage, but then he also provides some instructions for marriage, instructions for marriage. God didn't just create marriage, the inception of marriage and say, figure it out yourself. God gives us some instructions that we need to pay attention to and apply to our lives when it comes to marriage. First of all, he gives some instructions of commitment. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. We read it just a moment ago, but I want to use it in a different way. And hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. To, to me, that verse oozes of commitment. Because you're leaving, you're holding to someone, and it's like God has made you one body. It's like God has brought you together as one person. God didn't bring Eve to Adam and say, well, Adam, just kind of enjoy as long as you like to. And, and then when you get tired, I'll remove on somewhere else. God wasn't trying to establish and set up a one night stand when, when he was creating Eve and bringing Eve and Adam together. He, he was setting up commitment between them. And this verse speaks of commitment about them being brought together and being joined together as one flesh. He, he tells them literally that to, to go and become intimate. That's what that language even refers to in one flesh. 
And, and there's have that commitment together, not just to, to, to be intimate and then separate and then move on. God's original ideal of marriage involves permanence. It's a commitment of joining two individuals together for life. That's God's original picture, original ideal of marriage. Now, having said that, we don't live in a perfect world, do we? We live in a world that's been impacted by sin. And because of that, there are things like divorce that regrettably happen. It's never fun. As a matter of fact, if you've got a one flesh concept and you start cutting off parts of the body, that's painful, isn't it? Just as it would be in surgery. It's, it's painful in a relationship to start just slicing that relationship apart. But we had this thing called sin that entered the world. And, and because of sin... That's the root cause of things that lead to divorce anyway. So while the, while the message today is, is about marriage, not about divorce, I still think I need to talk to you a little bit about divorce too. To where you understand, because, because sometimes in some areas and in some circles you walk in, people will make divorce like it's the unpardonable sin. And, and like you're just messed up forever if that happens to you. I want you to notice what Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3 through 9. The Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife? And I underline some stuff here, just to word stand out, for any cause. <laughs> hey, Jesus, if she burns a biscuit, can I divorce her? I mean, for any reason whatsoever. Here's the response of Jesus. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Once again, that's God in the flesh reaffirming what I just said as he points back to Genesis and he says a marriage is a man and a woman. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. He's quoting what we just looked at. And they shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. And then Jesus says this, well, therefore God is joined together. Let not man separate. Let's keep reading. They said to him, because they didn't like his answer. <laughs> they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? See, in Jesus straighten them out here in just a second. Moses never commanded anybody to divorce anyone. They're trying to act like they've got a right to do it because they thought they were commanded. Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Not command, but allowed. But then notice what Jesus says here. But from the beginning, it was not so. So here, Jesus, God in the flesh, says the original concept of marriage from the very beginning is a man and a woman brought together for life. That's God's original ideal. And while he even is going to give us a reason for divorce, he gives an exception clause here. He says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So even Jesus gives an exclusion clause to where there can justly be a divorce take place, a biblical divorce take place. 
See, some people say, no, none of it's good. None of it can ever be right before God. But Jesus gives an exclusion clause here. But I want you to understand this. You need to, instead of looking for loopholes and exclusion clauses, you need to always go back to the original will of God. And that's what Jesus was pointing to. One man and one woman that are joined together for life. Look at John chapter 4 just for a minute. And here's a little nuance of this passage that some people never deal with. The part of it I'm about to, to, to refer to. The woman at the well is a background story. The woman is going to the well to draw water at the time of day when none of the rest of the women are going to be there because she's got a bad reputation. And she doesn't want to deal with them looking down upon her and condemning her. So she goes at a different time frame. Jesus said to her, go call your husband. They've been having a conversation now for a minute. Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. I want you to pay attention to what Jesus says. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you, and the one you now have is not your husband, so what you said is true. Think about this for a moment. If all divorce and remarriage is always, 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 always a sin and always wrong, remember Jesus gave an exclusion clause a minute ago. Okay? But think about this. You have God in the flesh telling this woman, God call your husband. And she says, I don't have one. If the truth of the matter is what some people teach, and I've ran into it a lot in this area over the years, they will teach, now now wait a minute, If, if Jesus had bought into the philosophy that I run into a lot, Jesus would have looked at that woman and said, now wait a minute, that first husband's still your husband as far as I'm concerned. When she said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, now wait a minute, yeah, yeah, you do remember that first one. That's still your husband as far as I'm concerned. That's not what Jesus said. Remember who we're talking about, God in the flesh. If he wanted to teach that as a principle of marriage, that all divorce is always completely wrong, Jesus would have said, That first husband, you said you don't have a husband, but you do. You're married to that first one. Remember that one? Jesus had a perfect opportunity to correct her. He did not. Instead, he agrees with her. And he says, what you said is correct. Now, once again, that's about all I want to say about that because the message today is about marriage. It's not about divorce. But I felt like I needed to be fair and deal with all of it. The deal with it is still this. In every couple I have ever married... Whether they have gone through a divorce and it was a biblical divorce or it's a young couple getting married for the first time. I always, always, always tell them you need to view God's original concept. God's original plan for marriage is the one man, one woman joined together for life. And here's why I tell them that. Because if they don't buy into that original concept, if in the back of their mind they're thinking, well, things don't work out, we can just get a divorce, then you're a hop, skip, and a jump from getting a divorce already before you get married. I understand it's not always easy. I understand relationships are tough. My wife is here and she probably could tell you many times I've acted in a way she probably wanted just to take off and go some other direction 
And there have been times that I might have felt like that, like early on in the marriage and having arguments and, and debates and things like that. You know what I'm thankful for? I'm thankful for God's grace and mercy that's kept us together all these years. We, we need to get a hold of what God's original plan was. To enforce that, put some teeth in it. Listen to what God said in Malachi. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. He's talking about divorce. For one cutter of violence with his garment, and the Lord of, saith the Lord of hosts, therefore take heed to your spirit that you don't deal treacherously. He's talking to the men for dealing treacherously with their wives and divorcing them without cause. And, and, and God is saying, I hate divorce. The inception of marriage is from God. God gives us instructions of marriage and an instruction of commitment, but also marriage was an instruction to multiply. But because going back to Genesis again, next slide, please. It says in Genesis one twenty eight, and God blessed them and said to them, the them is Adam and Eve, just to be clear, a man and a woman. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on, on the earth. Okay, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm just an old country boy being real logical here. How can a same-sex marriage meet this instruction to multiply? It cannot. A man and a man's not going to have babies. We've got a crazy adoption program that's allowing some of those adoptions to take place, but they can't have a baby. A woman and a woman's not going to have a baby. It's impossible for a same sex union to multiply. So, foundationally, in the very beginning, when God's laying out this thing of marriage and, and, and them being brought together in an intimate way, and having children and multiplying. He, that's one of the things he tells them, be fruitful and multiply. And that's impossible to happen in a same-sex union. If Adam and Eve had adopted some of the ideology that's being kicked around out in our culture today, you and I wouldn't be here. And the human race would not have existed because the multiplication that we're told here could not have taken place. Does that sound logical to you? We also are given instructions of behavior. This is the part where I get to meddle and some of you won't like it, probably. <laughs> instructions of behavior concerning marriage. Here's what I view as a, as a starting point. Even when you start thinking about dating somebody. This isn't just addressing marriage. I think this addresses a lot of things, business relationships and a lot of stuff. But Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? See, I, I think here's the deal with that. When you start thinking about entering into a relationship, you ought to find out if that other person is a believer first. Some of you have entered relationships in your past and maybe even married where the other person wasn't a believer. And then thankfully they came to Christ. Amen? I know with some of you here and that's your story. Thank God for that. 
But I also know of stories where that didn't happen and there's tragic heartbreak and not the same foundation in the marriage and the relationship at all. So this is mainly maybe for some of our younger people that haven't married yet. Here's a good tip for you. Before you ever agree to date anybody, you need to find out if that other person is a believer or not. And if they're not a believer, don't even go down the road of dating them. Because you can enter into this thing of an emotional attraction and all of a sudden you get bound up in this person and you think that's the person for me and they don't even know Christ as their Savior and you pursue it on and get involved in a marriage relationship that winds up bringing you heartbreak and sorrow all the rest of your days unless it leads to a divorce and then you try and back up and fix things all over again. But you need to find out to begin with that person's a believer before you even go out with them. Young lady, if some guy comes up and wants to take you on a date or take you to the prom, you need to ask him if he's a Christian. And if he says yes, you need to invite him to come to church with you a couple of times. If he refuses to do that or he doesn't give you evidence that he's a Christian, don't go on a date with him. I'm sorry, but I think that's good advice. I have preached that before, not here, but I had preached it before somewhere else. And I had a young girl come up afterwards and, and, and say, well, but there's this guy that, uh, that, that I'm wanting to try and uh, date. And, and I, he, he doesn't know Jesus, but I want to date him and take him out. And, and I want to try and get him to know Jesus. I asked her, I said, is, uh, is he good looking? <laughs> oh, yeah, he's hot. He's really good looking. And I said, if you're going to date evangelize, why don't you go get an ugly dude and date him? You see, that revealed her true motives to her. I'm just trying to save you some trouble. Foundational place to start. Be sure that other person has the same spiritual foundation that you have in your life. And for you being a Christian, that means that person knows Christ as their Savior. He gives some instructions to the wives. In Ephesians chapter 5, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Ladies, uh, let me put that in perspective. The verse right before it talks about believers submitting to believers. So guys, that in context means that, hey, sometimes we may have to be submissive too. Amen? If I had to be submissive to another believer, I may have to be submissive to my wife about something sometime. Okay? And the word is not a derogatory term. It's a military word that talks about order and function anyway. It doesn't mean you're less than him. But, but it says, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And here's the secret. Here's the trick in that. I know enough <laughs> from being married in 40 years that I guarantee you there were days that Becky did not want to submit to me. Because I'd been a numbskull or whatever. I could call myself something else, but we're in church, so I won't. And some of you ladies have had the same thing happen. And you're thinking, I don't really like him right now, so I don't want to submit to him. Here's, here's a way you train your mind to be submissive. You look beyond who he is and you look to Jesus. Because you're submitting to him as unto the Lord. That's who you're really submitting to, is Jesus in, in that moment. And he goes on and, and says for the husbands, the Head of the wife is Christ is the head of the church. You'll have to back up, please. You'll have to ask Jesus about all this, why he chose to do it like that, why he had the, the, the husband to be made first, and why he considers him the, uh, the, the head of the wife or the head of the family. Uh, as Christ is the head of the church's body, and he's, the sa- and he's its savior. And as the church 
So Mr. Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. You know what I think the problem is there? It says as the church submits to Christ, a lot of wives haven't had a picture of a submissive church. And that hurts to say that. But if we'd be more submissive as a church to the will of God and his purposes in our lives, maybe wives would have a better illustration of how they're supposed to be submissive. He also gives advice to the husband. Instructions of behavior for the husband. Ladies, as much as you might dislike that idea of submit, always in the Bible, it seems to me, when it's talking about the marriage relationship and the family, always God throws more in the lap of the husband than he did the wife. You think that submission stuff sounded tough? Look what's said here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her. It might be tough to be told to be submissive. The husbands have just been told to love your wife like Jesus loved the church. Hey, Jesus went to the cross for the church. Jesus sacrificially died for the church. And if more of us could convince our wives that we sacrificially love them, we wouldn't have much problem with them being able to be submissive if they know we love them like Christ loved the church. If we could communicate that to them. That he may sanctify her. One of the main thoughts about sanctification is to be being set apart. God sanctifies us when we receive Christ as our Savior. He sets us apart to himself. And right here, he's using this as an illustration in marriage. And he said that he may sanctify her. Talking about Jesus setting aside the church and cleansing her by the washing of water by the word so that he may present the church to himself in splendor. Listen, guys, if we will love our lives right, right, we can, we can set our wives more apart to us. More apart to maybe how we feel like they need to be. We can mold them and transform them by our love. It says without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she may be holy and and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Come back to that one flesh concept we're talking about earlier. If you are loving your wife correctly, guys, you're really loving yourself. Hey, if you think you can be mean to her during the day and expect things to be cool in the bedroom at night, you're deluding yourself. We we need to learn to to love them like Christ loved the church. Because if you hurt her, you're hurting yourself. If I pulled a hammer out and hit myself on the hand, it's going to hurt. Because it's part of my body. And if you intentionally hurt your spouse, whether it be you... As a man hurting your wife, I'm not talking about necessarily physically. There's a lot of emotional things you can do to hurt them. Or a woman, the, the wife also hurting your husband intentionally. You're part of one body. It's going to hurt. It's not going to make things go well in the relationship. For no one ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and, and the two shall become one flesh. That same concept over and over again in in the Bible. A man and a woman married for life becoming one flesh is God's original plan. It's God's original ideal. There's also a foundational principle or a foundational behavior 
that he closes out this section about. It, it's, well, I start to say it's a strange thing. It's not. I think it's an important thing for us to notice. That in this section of Scripture where Paul, under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, is writing about the husband and wife relationship. He sums it up with these two verses. I'm going to deal with verse 32 in just a moment. So I'm just going to read verse 33 right now. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. He's summing all that up about the husband and wife relationship. And he gives us two huge goals to have in mind. Husband, men, you're supposed to have in your mind loving your wife. You ought to be planning day in and day out, how can I let her know I love her? And a lot of times the way we want to love them is maybe not the way that they're needing to be loved in the moment. We think of it as the bedroom all the time. It could be doing the dishes or mopping the floor. (laughs) Figured I'd get an amen there. But see, I think the the reason God says this in, in these verses, remember he made us. Amen? We didn't just evolve. He made us. He wired us the way that he's wired us as men and women. Foundationally, women want to feel like they're loved. All the women say amen again. It's very important that you feel like you're loved. Amen? It's not that you don't want to feel respected, but God wired you in such a way that you highly value knowing that you're loved. And that's why I said a moment ago, if, if we can convince our wives we love them like Christ loved the church, all that submission stuff would be pretty easy and take care of itself. But, but ladies, God also wired the men a little bit differently. It's not that men don't want to feel loved, we do. But there's a huge thing that God wired into our hearts that men want to be respected. And ladies, your husband wants to know he has your respect more than anybody else in, that walks the face of this earth. He wants to know that he's respected by you. So you've got a goal and a target to shoot for. You need to be thinking about how can I make him feel respected. And guys, you need to be thinking about how can I make her feel loved. And if we'll address those two issues consistently in the marriage relationship, I promise you the marriage will be a whole lot better. Third thing is an illustration of marriage this morning. An illustration of marriage. Verse 32 that I skipped over a second ago says this. This mystery is profound. Paul is saying, and and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So in, in all that section in Ephesians we were just looking at where he's dealing with husband and wives, Paul tells us this while he was talking about husbands and wives, He's really talking about the church and Christ. He's talking about Jesus, the bridegroom, the husband. And he's talking about the church being the bride. That's basically foundationally what he's writing about. He's letting us know that Jesus and the church, the bride and the bridegroom, ought to serve as a model and an illustration for our marriages. But I think the flip side of that is true also. 
And that is as believers, our marriages ought to be showing a lost world what Jesus and the church is like. I'm going to come back to something I said earlier about multiplying. How can a same-sex relationship, how can a same-sex marriage give a picture of Christ and the church? My argument to you is that it cannot. Let me put that in perspective. I'm not saying that they can't seem loving toward each other. I'm not saying that they can't be benevolent toward each other. But when their behavior is going directly opposed to what the Word of God says, when their practice is going exactly opposite to what the Bible says, how in the world can them practice in things that the Bible says is clearly wrong and clearly sinful and clearly opposite of God's will? How in the world can that give an illustration and a picture of Jesus and the church? And my argument is, it can't. So there's those two strong implications there. The first one I've already dealt with, how, how can same-sex marriage portray Christ in the church? It can't, really. Not fully, not biblically, not correctly. The second implication is this. Is your marriage given a correct picture of Christ in the church? pretty easy for us as conservative believers a lot of times just to want to apply the Bible in certain areas, such as same-sex marriage or homosexuality. What about us? What about your marriage? What about your relationship? Is it giving a picture to the people around you in the world of Jesus and the church? Are you sacrificially loving each other? Are you being submissive to each other when it warrants to be submissive? Are you molding each other with the love that you have for each other like Jesus is molding the church? Are you applying that one flesh concept where you recognize if you hurt your spouse, you're hurting yourself? Are you loving like Jesus loves? Are you giving the respect that the Bible tells us to give the respect? Are you really giving a picture to a lost world around you of Jesus and the church? And if you'd have to say no, maybe today's a good time to start changing that. So since the Bible is true, it needs to be true in areas that's being debated in our culture. It needs to be true in areas of marriage. Next week, we're going to talk about, I I might not should tell you because some of you may not show up. Some of you may show up really early (laughs) because I'm going to deal with what the Bible has to say about sex. The world has its concept. We need to give God's concept. And I hope I preach today in the right spirit, guys. I don't want to come across as a homophobe. I don't want to. Cr- you see, we, we need to tell people the truth, but tell them the truth in love. Amen? Amen. 
I think part of the problem is we've not told people the truth. I think you can throw it to the foot of the church. The reason why we have all this taking place, we've not discipled people. They don't even know what the Bible says about marriage. They don't even know why same-sex marriage would be wrong because they just think, well, it's just really loving and it's really cool. I see things posted online all the time. People put pictures up, sometimes of those types of relationships. And they'll hashtag it, things like, nobody can judge me but God. Well, as far as condemning you in eternity, that's true. But as far as judging whether something's right or wrong in your life, that's not true because God's already said that it's wrong. I don't want to come across in the wrong way. But hey, if you attend this church, if you're a member of Day 3 Church, I have the responsibility to watch out for your soul. And that means I need to tell you the truth even if the government shows up and say you can't keep saying that. I need to tell you the truth even if it makes me your enemy in some way because you don't like what I say. I'm, I'm not trying to be your enemy. I'm not trying to be hateful. I'm not, I'm not trying to go after groups in our culture. I'm just trying to tell you what the Bible says. And, and we need to hold to that and, and, and teach that. The inception of marriage came from God, not the government. So what he says here ought to be most important. Instructions of marriage. He instructs us, gives us a manual for how to make the thing work if we'll just apply it to our lives and to our marriage. There's an illustration of marriage that we ought to be given a lost world around us to where our marriages, our relationships look like Jesus in the church. We get ready to go into this time we call an invitation time. On the screen, they're going to bring up about, I think, five things that that I put up I want you to think about and and consider this morning. First one is simply this. Is your marriage a picture of Christ and His church? I understand some of you are struggling. I understand all of us struggle from time to time. Amen? Be honest. But if you don't think your marriage is given a picture of Jesus in the church, maybe it'd be a good time to ask God to help the marriage. And if you make commitments together today, husbands and wives together, to make the marriage where it looks more like Jesus in the church. Number two, if you've been misled by our culture to accept definition of marriage that are opposed to God's will, I hope today's a wake-up call for you. In our culture, you're hearing about it from news media and from politicians. Now, I just wish people would be honest with us. We've had politicians who would say on the front end of getting elected, I believe in traditional marriage. I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman until after they got elected, and then they completely changed the story. You're having to face it in schools and in everything else. But if you're a Christian, you need to understand what the Bible says should be the authority in your life, including marriage and sexuality. Number three, do you know Christ is your Savior? Because all the sacrificial love we talked about, that points back to Jesus. He sacrificially loved you enough to die on the cross for your sins. And if you've never trusted in Christ today, why not today? Number four, as a Christian, ask yourself this. 
Am I living a submissive life to Jesus? Am I living a submissive life to God's will, to what He wants in my life? And number five, on this Mother's Day, your mother's present during the invitation. I don't care how much you have to disrupt and move around, ask people to get out of your way or whatever. If your mother's here during this invitation, why not during the invitation go to your mother and thank her for being your mom? If your mother's already gone on like mine has, then during this invitation, maybe pray and thank God for the mother that He gave you. If your mother's not here, and yet she's still alive, reach out to her today. Well, preacher, you don't know my mother. You you don't know how difficult that, that it could be. Yeah, I do. Mine lived with me the last five years of her life. But it's maybe if you open up a dialogue by calling her and saying, I love you, thank you for being my mom, it might open up a door to fix some things out of the past. And men, I think today would be a good day to tell your wife you love her. (laughs) Maybe grab her by the hand, lead her to an altar and pray. I don't always get it right. I don't always think to do this. This morning when I woke up to get ready to come to church, about the same time Becky started stirring around, and I, I, I happened to, to be sharper than normal maybe this morning. <laughs> and the first thing I said to her was, Happy Mother's Day. And the second thing I said to her was, Thank you for giving us the children that we have. Why not tell your wife something like that during this invitation? Father, we thank you for motherhood. We thank you that you chose to do it the way that you did. Father, we live in a culture that looks like to me, from a Bible viewpoint, that's gone crazy. Father, help us to correctly teach people, to correctly nurture people, not in a hateful way, but help us to show what your will is for marriage, what your will is for relationships. Father, help us to put what you want to be more important in our lives than what we want or what our culture says is correct. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church. Experience a new day in your life.